Well, good morning. Before David comes and brings us the word this morning, he's asked me to read that scripture again. So if you have your Bibles, why don't you grab it out and follow along? We're reading from 1 John chapter 2, verses 15 to 27. Do not love the world or anything in the world. If anyone loves the world, love for the Father is not in them. For everything in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes and the pride of life comes not from the Father, but from the world. The world and its desires pass away, but whoever does the will of God lives forever. Dear children, this is the last hour. And as you have heard that the Antichrist is coming, even now many Antichrists have come. This is how we know it is the last hour. They went out from us, but they did not really belong to us. For if they had belonged to us, they would have remained with us. But their going showed that none of them belonged to us. But you have an anointing from the Holy One, and all of you know the truth. I do not write to you because you do not know the truth, but because you do know it, and because no lie comes from the truth. Who is the liar? It is whoever denies that Jesus is the Christ. Such a person is the Antichrist, denying the Father and the Son. No one who denies the, denies the Son has the Father. Whoever acknowledges the Son has the Father also. As for you, see that what you have heard from the beginning remains in you. If it does, you will also remain in the Son and in the Father. And this is what he promised us, eternal life. I am writing these things to you about those who are trying to lead you astray. As for you, the anointing you received from him remains in you. And you do not need anyone to teach you. But as his anointing teaches you about all things, and as that anointing is real, not counterfeit, just as it has taught you, remain in him. Thank you so much, Katie. Can we give a round of applause to Katie for sharing the scriptures? Well, good morning, New Life Kulungata. So excited to be here this morning to unpack the Word of God, to open it up and share with it as a community. I said in the 8 a.m., I love sharing the Word of God here because I, I, I get to be a part of a community that actually loves the world, uh, the Word, my bad, loves the Word. You'll know why I said that shortly, um, <laughs> but loves the Word. And opening the Word of God isn't hard as this community. It's good. I, I know that we're not, I'm not competing for your attention. We're kind of all leaning in together. But hey, uh, today we are going to be reading through 1 John chapter 2, verse 15. If you have your Bibles, go ahead and open it there if you haven't already. But as you do, if you haven't met me before, my name is David Skembry. I get the joy of being on team here. And my role on team is to help in some way build healthy Jesus communities. So if that is something you're interested in, come and chat to me because we love communities that are driven about Jesus. But we are currently in a series. It's a series, as you can guess by the title screen behind me, that is looking through the book of 1 John. Perhaps you're asking, how many Johns are there? No, it's the first letter that John wrote and is recorded in Scripture. There are three total. This is also the same John, as we learned in week one, that wrote the Gospel of John. And this series has begun by, well, Mike Hans came two weeks ago, and he opened this series by letting us know that this book is broken up into two sections. The first section is an exploration of how God is 
light. And the first half of the book revolves around this idea. And the second section is an exploration of how God is love. And it revolves around this idea of God being love. And so he opened our series up by saying, with John writing that, I have seen, I have heard, I have touched, I have eaten with, I have cried on the shoulder of this man Jesus. It is not an idea or a philosophy, or a new thought process, some information. It's not the idea of the gospel for John wasn't some sort of cool uh, new way of looking at the world. John understood that everything he was saying came from the person who was Jesus. When Jesus calls himself perfect, John says, this isn't an idea. I watched with my own eyes Jesus be perfect. When Jesus says, I will bring life transformation, John says, this isn't a new idea. This is something I've experienced, tasted, seen, witnessed, been a part of. And we too, Scott, last week opened up the scriptures by examining this idea of, of, of God, of Jesus being light. And he opened up why God being light is such an important thing and how we as Christians are therefore called to walk in the light like he is. They were both phenomenal sermons. If you haven't heard them, please go and find them and listen to them. But today we're continuing this series by unpacking the world that is darkness. If God is light then what is God's darkness? What is the absence of him? What does it look like? And how should we as his people interact with it? And so we turn to 1 John chapter 2, verse 15, and it says this, Do not love the world or anything in the world. If anyone loves the world, love for the Father is not in them. Now, I don't know if you pay attention to these things, but you may have noticed that John decided to write the word world a whole heap of times there. And if you, like me, think that's odd, you really only had to say it once, you know, maybe you wonder, was he making a point? What is the world? What is he talking about here? There are plenty of other scriptures in the Bible that use the word world and seem to say something different to what this is saying. John 3.16, for God so loved the world, loved the world, that he gave his one and only son that those who believe in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. What is the world, and why should we not love it? What does it mean to love the world? And if you're a good Bible reader, you know that usually if you just keep reading, you find the answers. So verse 16, it starts to unpack it. It says, everything in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life, comes not from the Father, but from the world. For everything in the world, everything in the world, is built up of three building blocks. The lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. And these things, the world, these ideas, the, the building blocks of the world, they don't come from God who made all things. They actually come from the world itself. That is this, and it's a complicated, weird-sounding thought, but the world is self-defining. The world finds its own meaning. It was not created by God. It was not part of Genesis. What John is talking about here is not the same word or the same idea of world used in John 3.16. The idea of world we see here is talking about the culture, 
the society, the mental maps of reality that we live in when we take God out of the equation. Because when you take God out of the equation, and I think we can all relate to this, what we're left with, what we're left with are disordered desires and twisted senses of accomplishment, and we will get there shortly. So we read this command to not love the world or anything in the world. And we read this command, and, and, and I don't know if you read commands in the Bible the same way I do, but the first thing I do when I read a command in the Bible is think, oh, hot diggity, I'm going to fail this one, right? I read these commands in the Bible, and I think, I don't know if I've got this, and I know I've definitely not had it before. But this scripture, it, it's not so much the do better, be better, be stronger, be perfect kind of scripture. It's a diagnosis. It's a revelation. He's saying there is an issue that we all relate to. It's deeper than just not kicking people in the face and being mean. It's deeper than, you know, sharing and being kind. It's an issue that starts, causes, and leads us to the kinds of sins that we are surrounded by every day and finds ourselves partaking in. And so maybe you're in this room and you say, but what's so bad about a self-defining culture? What's so bad about excluding God from the way we do things? What's so bad about defining reality from ourselves? And the next verse, in verse 17, says, well, the world... That is, the way of doing life, when we take God out of the equation, the world and its desires pass away, but whoever does the will of God lives forever. In other words, death, death, death stalks the ways of the world. And life, life abounds eternally when we follow the ways of God. In simple English, God is just crying out, children, my children, would you hear me? Like, stay away from the breaking and the brokenness. Stay away from the dying and the death. Children, listen to me. This isn't what I'm about. This isn't who I am. If you want to be with me, just trust me and steer clear of this broken way of doing life. And so we're going to take a few minutes to explore why a love of the world cannot coexist with a love of the Father. Why, when we have a sense that says, yeah, I love God, but I, you know, I also love the world and its ways and its orders. I think both can kind of work together. I will love Jesus and, and the Father on Sundays and at small group, and I'll love the world at work and when I'm hanging with my friends. And here, what John is saying is they don't work together. It's one or the other. And so we're going to take the next uh, little while we have together to explore what this looks like and means. But before we do, how about we pray together? Holy Jesus, how desperate we are for a bit of you in this room. We need your life. We need your love. We need your joy. We need your kindness. We need your goodness. We need the way that you care for every human being and every story in this room. We need you in this room because if you don't show up, this is just a speech. And Jesus, what I pray is that as you come, as the Holy Spirit fills this room, we would be filled with your beautiful and wonderful goodness, that our eyes would be totally filled with how wonderful a light you are, that we in this place right now would find freedom and healing from addictions and chains and brokenness that have a bondage, a hold on our souls, that we would see breakthrough today and see the beginning of a journey to life as a community, that in all the ways, my God, that we are in bondage to the love of the world, we would be all the more captivated by our love for you. May we leave this place more in love with who you are than we have ever been before. I pray that everyone in this room would be in agreement, tender-hearted and open to seeing what you're going to do. 
Jesus, in your mighty name we pray. Amen. Has anyone in this room ever opened up their scriptures with this beautiful, wholehearted intent to read them? And within a few lines, totally glazed over, or worse, fallen asleep? Is it just me? I hope not. Please say no. (laughs) I'll get off. Um, Here's the thing. I used to be a barista, which means I had to get up for work really early. And at 4 a.m. when my alarm would go off, I was convicted for a season that before I do anything else, even get out of bed, I should read some of God's word and get it in my head. Beautiful idea. I know what you're thinking. How holy. Thank you. So I used to open my scriptures. Well, roll over, grab my phone, I should say, even holier. Scroll to the Bible app, open it up, and read the Bible. Except here's the thing. At 4 a.m., My brain doesn't understand 90% of what it's reading. And when I read something in scriptures I don't get, that's when my eyes glaze over and I've scrolled like five or six pages without reading a word. Or worse, learned the reason I need to set a second alarm. So here's the craziest thing about scripture. And we all need to get this. It's hard. It's hard to read. It can be incredibly different to the way we're used to reading words and text and ideas and stories. And we we actually need to be okay with that. And then we need to learn how to read it better. So for John in his ancient times, in his ancient ways, he loved, his culture loved arguing. Like they, I have three sisters, I know arguing. No, no, they love arguing. And they used to have this subject in school and in high school where to be any kind of like anything in the world, you had to do this subject. And the subject was a study of rhetoric, which literally kind of just means... The study of how to present ideas and how to hear ideas. And then when, they've, when you've heard it, present a better idea, right? And I think to myself, man, I wish we as a culture would be better at hearing other people's ideas as opposed to just jumping down their throats when they say something we don't agree with. But anyway, side note, John here was using something he would have learned from rhetoric class. You see, when I and you write a book or a letter, you know, here's what we do. Introduction, this is what I'm going to talk about. Argument one, argument two, argument three, conclusion or what to do with it. If you're a good little uni student, references. If you're a bad little uni student, me, probably not. And so, and that's how we write. That's how we understand. That's how we read. But this isn't the way John wrote this. See, John used an ancient form of rhetoric called amplification. And amplification is quite simple, but just different. You see, amplification had the idea that if you wanted to take one thing out of what we're talking about, one thing out of a subject, one way you can do that is by circling it over and over and over and over again until it's touched as many different ideas of life and reality as possible. For instance, if he wanted to talk about light, he would circle around the concept of light, the concept of God, the concept of, of what it means to not be in light, the concept of death and darkness and everything else, Until eventually, it's impossible to think about God without in some way thinking of the characteristics of light. It's impossible to see a light and not think about the beauty of God. To so interweave these ideas together that they are almost indistinguishable in our understanding. And so here what we see is actually a part of that kind of wrapping around the attributes of light. Now, I don't know if you know this. Last week, uh, Scott shared it with us. But... But when there is darkness, there is not light. When there is light, there is not darkness. Not because they're not good friends, not because they don't like each other, but because by definition, darkness is the absence of light. By definition, light is the presence of something that is not darkness. 
And this is the idea that we see John start to tout in this scripture. He says, if you love the world, you cannot be in love with the Father. If you have love for the world, then love for the Father is not in you. He's not saying it might be in you. He's not saying it could be in you. He's using this dark light imagery here to, con- uh, to contrast these two ideas together. If you have love for the world, you do not have love for the Father. Full stop, no questions asked. If you have love for the Father, you do not have love for the world. And I'm left asking when I read this, I'm like, well, how? How do you justify this argument? Can this be true? Is this real? John, is it just a really over-the-top example, or do you mean this seriously? And over the last few weeks of trying really hard to not glaze over whilst I read the Scripture and to really study and lean in, I've come to really think that there is no way we can read the Scripture and walk away not realizing he means this literally. We choose. Do we choose to love the Father, or do we choose to love the world? And the way he makes this argument is actually in the details, in in two little points he makes. Uh, The the first point he does is he starts by explaining why the world is to God what darkness is to light. He, He says in verse 16, for everything in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life, they don't come from the Father, they come from the world. So he defines the nature of the world as three things. And and I said it before, as as, um, flesh of the, sorry, lust of the flesh, lust of the eyes, and pride of life. And if you think about these ideas, what he's saying is, is, is so simple. The world, it's built up on disordered desires within us and around us. And the world, the world is built up on misdirected achievements, misguided causes for celebration. I'll start with the first one. Maybe in this room you think, wow, lust and pride, that's weird. Is is John saying every issue in the world is to do with sex? That's strange. Well, the word lust is not intrinsically sexual, though it can be. In the Bible, it quite literally means this. Any passion, yearning, great big desire in your heart that you have for something that is forbidden, unhelpful, hurtful, or wrong. Well, that changes things. Because that means, yeah, you you can lust after sex, But you can also lust after comfort. You can lust after attention, applause, popularity, money, promotion, success. Lust is really any way that we crave and yearn for something our bodies tell us we need that we don't currently have, and the act of chasing it hurts, diminishes, wounds, or disobeys what is good. And it goes on, you know, the lust of the eyes and the lust of the flesh, quite simple. The lust of the flesh is, is simply we're all born with innate desires. We choose what to do with them. We all, come on, everyone in this room feels a drive to eat that larger plate of food when it's there in front of you, right? Everyone in this room feels that urge to take and not give. Everyone in this room feels the urges that, that fill our soul and grab our attention. We were born with it. Go and, like, my, my uh, little sister had a kid um, two years ago-ish, and that kid, he didn't get taught to be selfish or mean or rude. Like, he just takes what he wants. It's innate. It's the lust of nature, but there's also the lust of nurture. That is the desire to take things that we're told we need. Things that we really don't need, but we're raised in a schooling system, a family, we watch enough television, we listen to enough adverts, we listen to enough political ideas, until slowly we are twisted enough within us from the truth of God that we begin to believe a disordered desire for something that we've been taught we need, and if we don't have, we'll be less satisfied less human, less alive. 
So, yeah, okay, the world is built up on disordered desires. And he goes on to say it's also the pride of life. Now, the pride of life is a weird sentence. I love this scripture. Why can't he just say things a bit simpler? I don't know. But the pride of life are just misdirected achievements. It's such, a, it's such like a, a strange way of saying it, but it's kind of like this. I built for myself a record label of 10 million platinum hits. Amazing. Look at me. I have $60 billion in my bank account. Look at me. Whenever I tell jokes, people laugh, and all the people love me. Right? That is the pride of life. Because the pride of life is a deep obsession with the work of our hands. The pride of life is a deep, overwhelming attraction to what I can do, what I, well, no, not what I can, but what I have done, what I have gained, what I have built, what I have achieved. It's an inability to lay it down. It's an obsession with ourselves. And the problem with it is it's never like an objective standard. It's always competitive. You know, if you're in this room, you're probably in the top 8 to 10% richest people in the world. Do you feel good about that? Do you think and get up in the morning, whoa, top 10% again, I did it. No, right? You get up in the morning and think, ah, my neighbor still has that Tesla and I don't. Curse, drats, I need to get better. It's always competitive. It's never objective. It's not really about what we have. It's about what we perceive we don't have and that other people do have and a need to have it. And so we have this drive, this sense, this competitive urge that says, for me to succeed, you need to fail. And should you succeed, I have failed. The world is consumed by what we want and by what we have. It's consumed, obsessed with, totally taken in and infatuated by our desires that are disordered and by our celebrations that are misguided. This is what John means when he uses the word world. This is what he's talking about, a culture that is built up on the absence of God's instruction, word, and way. And maybe you're like, well, this is a good fairy tale, David. Very nice. It's not a fairy tale. My friends, think about the very world we live in. It's not hard to see these things have absolute power here. Guys, follow your heart. We are raised in a culture of Disney where you are born listening and watching movies that say because you feel it, the most honest thing you can do is do it. In fact, to not follow your heart would be repressive and broken and wrong. We are taught that just because it's in our hearts, it's the right thing to do. And what about advertising? You know, every year Apple releases a new iPhone and says, buy this iPhone and you will be satisfied. And every year they'll release another iPhone. Go figure. This is the thing. We are completely hit every side by the world trying to teach us what we need to be okay, to be happy. Everyone around us is saying, buy this next thing. Join this next movement. Be a part of this idea and you will find satisfaction for your souls. And every year we realize it's not enough. We need something more. We need a new club, a new group, a new hobby. Our world is built built on the Western success story. It's built on grind culture. It's built on the self-made person. 
It's built on the idea that you've got to prove that you have the right to live. You've got to prove that you're valuable. You have to build something with your hands. And if you don't, what was the point of your existence? This is what our world's built on. We are built on it so deeply. We have online platforms for gloating where when you do anything successful, you, put a, you slap a nice little uh, filter on it, give it a pink tinge, throw it up there for the world to see so that you can say, look what I've done. Look what I've achieved. And it's normal. No one posts their failures on Facebook and Instagram, right? Unless by posting it, they're going to get more likes and that'll help them with their successes. No one posts something and says, I hope it only gets five likes, right? It's gloat culture. We live in a world that is totally wrapped up in these disordered desires and this misdirected sense of achievement. This is what John is describing as the world. And it's not like we really have to look far to see it. It's not like you have to switch on the news or open, if anyone has them, a newspaper. I mean, it's here, between you and I, between one another, in our own hearts. It's not like somehow we just evaded the world our whole lives and it didn't get influence on us. Yeah, it's out there, but I'm, I'm good, I'm clean. That's ridiculous. It's in this room. I feel it in my heart. I go to work, someone leaves a dirty dish in the sink. What do I think? That ain't my dish. Why should I clean it up? You know, they should clean their own dishes. If I serve, I become less. I cut cut up a cake the other day, and the biggest slice of it I put on my plate, obviously. And I was like, I just sat there and was like, oh, David. (laughs) I really have to be a better person than this. And so I gave it away because... Okay, I'm a saint. But anyway, the, I actually didn't. To be, I actually didn't, to be honest. I ate it. But the point is, like, we all have these drives. We all have these, these ideas, these inclinations, these, these desires. It's not far from us. And they might be stupid examples. But the fact that it's so embedded in us that stupid examples can exist, that it's not just the deep and dismissed things, it's not just the dark sins we hide from, it's not just what we do when we go home, that thing we're addicted to or how we treat as significant other family members and friends, it's not just how we spend our time on the weekends or how we chase and love the things that other people tell us we ought to. It's even silly, stupid things that we've become so good at justifying, so good at laughing and and moving along. When a culture is built on anything except for God, it's built selfishly. And it's based on broken wants and it's based on misguided accomplishments. And no matter how nicely it comes wrapped, no matter how they preach the ideology, no matter how they preach the ideas, no matter how they sell it to you, it will always lead to pain. It will always lead to oppression. It will always lead to insulting, to wounding, to being stepped on, to diminishing, to competition, and to the breaking of one another. It will always do that. And no one in this room would argue because everyone in this room has been privy to the experience of this brokenness. Everyone in this room could relate to the idea of feeling stepped on, silenced, ignored, squashed, not wanted, pushed backwards. Everyone in this room can relate to bullying, discrimination, hurt, insult, competition that has wounded us. No one in this room says, no, not I. We get angry. We go, yeah, that's real. Verse 15, so do not love the world or anything in the world. If anyone loves the world, love for the Father, it's not in them. Why? Because love 
of the world. Love of what John describes here as the world is perpetuating the brokenness in the world. In other words, this version of world, this idea of world, this picture that John has painted, to love this world is to hate the people in it. Friends, to love the world is to hate the people who make it up. That's huge. Maybe you're still skeptical. You're like, okay, fine. The culture, when it's built, it leads us to, you know, do some mean things and some bad things happen. Okie dokie, true, true. But, like, come on, I still follow God. I still like him. Sure, on the weekends, I do this. Or I, I, perpet- I, I, you know, I keep this one going. I dive into my wants. And, but I only do it quietly. No one sees it. I still love God. Maybe in this room, you're not convinced that they cannot coexist. Well, the thing is, John doesn't only define what the darkness is. He also defines what the light is. What does he say? Well, let me tell you what he doesn't say. He doesn't define the nature of God, the nature of this light as boss man. He doesn't describe him as king. He doesn't describe him as a judge. He doesn't describe him as a a pal, a buddy, or a friend. He describes the light as a father. He describes the light as a father. Verse 15, do not love the world or anything in the world, if anyone loves the world, love for the Father is not in them. For everything in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life comes not from the Father, but from the world. To recognize how broken it is to love the world, we first have to recognize how beautiful it is that our God is a Father. See, I was born into a broken home. My real dad was, a, was not a good guy. He abused, he bullied, uh, he squashed me. I have three sisters, all of us suffered. He, he was just, he was an awful person. And we suffered under him and, and he, was, he would spend his money on what he wanted and not on us. He would only do what made him happy. He didn't really care for us. Everything had to be done perfectly. There was no concern. We were continuously squashed. And hey, I remember as like a, a kid, the whole way through my childhood, I, I, I like, I used to pray. I wasn't a Christian. I was English, so I believed in something. I wasn't a Christian, though, but I believed in this, this idea, so I prayed, God, whoever you are, whatever you are, take him away. Get rid of my father. I don't want him. I can't, I can't come home to another day of seeing him. I can't come back to, to, to my house after school today and have to, have to put up with the way he's going to talk or treat or whatever it is that I can't foresee that he's going to get angry about, and that's not going to go well. And for years, I prayed this pretty much every single day. When I was 13 or 14 years old, I was in school, and I got pulled out of a classroom, and there was a bunch of police officers there. And I found out that my sister had been brave, and she had shared with the police what had happened to our family. And my father was arrested. And at the time, my mom had remarried, and her husband, my stepdad, he wasn't like my father. He took us in. I don't know if anyone here has ever had much to do with people who have been through broken homes or, or not good family situations, but, but the kids in that situation, they're not, they're not okay. They're not just normal run-of-the-mill kids, right? They don't just go and have fun and chill. No, we, we needed attention. 
We were angry. We were desperate for love. I used to steal from my parents, lie to my parents, sneak out. I was aggressive, frustrated. I didn't know what to do. All I felt was so much anger and hurt and emotion inside of me, and I just couldn't. And still, no matter how much I spat in his face, my stepdad would stand there, and he would love me. He got annoyed at me at times, many times, but he would love me. He taught me I was lovable. He protected our family, provided, cared for, stood up for, cherished, didn't back down. And I did everything in my power, every excuse I could have given him to kick him out of my life, and he refused. He stubbornly committed to his promise of fatherhood over my family and over me and my sisters. And eventually he went on to adopt us so that we actually became his children. Friends, fatherhood isn't a passive act. It doesn't just happen and then it happens, it's done, like that's it, that's fatherhood. Fatherhood is a promise. It's a statement that someone, that father, will step in and protect, step in and love, step in and cherish. God is not the absent, passive father. He's the one who stepped in and said, I wasn't born, I didn't make this, but I'm stepping in and I'm protecting this. I'm stepping in and I will father my people. When God calls himself a father through the scripture, he's making a promise to provide for his people, defend his people, care for his people, cherish his people, love his people, teach his people. That is us. We are his people. He is our father. So when God steps into the world as a father, what does he bring with him? Goodness, healing, love, hope. And then we go ahead and love the world. Perpetuate brokenness, hurt, selfishness, wounds. Friends, when we love the world and anything in the world, how can we say we love the Father? We're actively undoing the thing he is suffering to do for us. God is not just some big, strong, distant creator. God isn't just some strange, giant, clock-making God that turned on time and said, off it pops. He didn't create us and then suddenly realize we've gone the wrong, one, the wrong way and say, hands off, I want nothing more to do with you. He's a father who's made a promise of fatherhood, of good fatherhood, to step in and stand for us. And so when we sit here and we say, no, nah, you're good, God, but I'm going to go and do my weekend thing. You're good on Sundays. I'm going to go do my weekend thing. I'm going to perpetuate the brokenness in my soul. All those things I want, those disordered and broken desires I have, all those lusts I'm stuck with, I'm going to celebrate with great ego, great pride, how I've squashed other people, how better I am than the people in my community, God. And then on Sunday, I'll come and I'll say you're good and I remember that Jesus is enough. When we do that, and I want to be clear here, we are all guilty of it. When we have our secret sin on the weekend, when we have that thing we keep doing to our family member with no accountability and no nothing, we just get angry, we just get frustrated. When we spend our money how we spend our money, we are perpetuating the brokenness of this world. When we do anything, 
at the exclusion of God. We are bringing more hurt into this world. This isn't small. So what do we do? Ignatius of Loyola, he was a, um, a Catholic um, missionary. He founded an order of missionaries that went on to do some incredible work around our world. He says this. He says, sin is the unwillingness to trust that what God wants for me is only my deepest happiness. Verse 27 says, As for you, the anointing you received from him, that is Jesus, remains on you. And you do not need to anyone to teach you, but as his anointing teaches you about all things, and as that anointing is real and not counterfeit, just as it has taught you, remain in him. In the first week, Mike said that this letter was written to respond to a problem. And there's a few things in here. I would glaze over on this one, I'm telling you. Uh, what's he saying? Um, he doesn't need anyone to teach us? Then why did John bother writing the letter? It's not what he's saying. But this letter was written to respond to a certain type of heresy, a certain type of false teaching about God. And that teaching was this, that you can be saved just by knowing, just by knowing more, just by knowing about. Gnosticism is the, the small bit of it, is Gnosis, so where we get knowledge from, right? The idea is that we can be saved just by knowing something more, that there is a secret knowledge. And if we just unpack it, wow, our salvation is in our hands. My friends, we do this to God today. If I just know about God, that's enough. But for John, this wasn't knowledge about God. This was a journey with a friend. He understood he was called to remain in him, to abide in him. How do we resist loving the world? How do we resist loving the world? Is it like this? White knuckle until a knuckle pops out and we just keep pressing on against the wind until the wind itself fails and then eventually maybe I'll be righteous enough to be saved. Is that how we do it? No, we will fail every single time. So how, does, how are we called to resist the inherent love we have for the world? Remain in Him. We don't end up where we don't want to go when we're actively going where we do. If you don't want to hate someone, sitting around all day trying hard not to hate them really doesn't do anyone any good. But actively choosing to love them actively avoids hating them. We don't end up where we don't want to go when we're intentionally going where we do. How do we resist loving the world? Do we sit at home all day and think about how we cannot love the world? Absurd. It would never work. How do we do it? We fill ourselves with the one we do want to love. We fill our eyes with the one we do want to love. We become consumed by Jesus. We allow the wonder of Him to fill our heads and our hearts. We create rhythms in our habits, in life of, of, of love, and create space to abide, to read His Word, to know His wonder and His character. My friends, spiritual practices are not acts of religion. They're acts of spiritual warfare and freedom in our hearts. How do we resist the world? We know that the same person that transformed John's life has transformed billions of people's lives so far, has continued transforming lives even into this room today. My testimony, being a part of that story of the Jesus who changes lives. He is not an idea, but a person for us to become friends with. So what do we do right now as I speak? I invite us to think on Christ. 
What do you think about? Imagine Him as a light. Consider Him as a light. Turn our eyes in this moment towards Him. This is not a call for tomorrow. This is not a call for when you're good enough, holy enough, righteous enough, suffering enough, low enough, and broke enough. This is a call for this moment. We do it now as we are. We turn our eyes to Him. We consider Him. We consider the beauty of music and the beauty of taste. We consider the God who upon the cross took all the hurt we put on other people and put it on Himself. We consider the Christ who in His final breath had us in this room on His mind. I don't know if anyone here has ever tried to win a fight by just not doing it. Anyone here has ever tried to not think about something by thinking about not thinking about it. It doesn't work. Become obsessed with Jesus, friends. If my real dad was obsessed with Jesus, if my real dad had considered the way of God and said, I know I feel in my heart the yearning and the desire to go this way, but I choose to trust God even when it doesn't make sense. There is a whole heap of hurt, a whole heap of pain, a whole swath of my journey I wouldn't have had to endure. My poor sisters, my mom. If one person had just said, I don't understand why it's so hard, but I know that God is good and I will trust his way. And so he went that way. The pain I would have avoided, the pain he avoids in guilt and shame. Friends, today I invite us to consider God as good, to know He's good, and to choose Him as our highest love. Would you join me in prayer? Jesus, there is no one but you. We are a broken people in desperate need. There is no story of victory. There's no story of the world satisfying. There is no story of hope found in any place that excludes you. So you call us to resist our urge for disordered desires, to resist that urge to celebrate brokenness. And you call us instead to desire you, to fall in love with you, to trust you, to become obsessed with you, to fill our hearts, our heads and our eyes with you. I pray even right now as we seek you, this isn't a one-man show. I am not the only one in this room praying. But as a community, we seek you right now. We turn our eyes to you. We set our eyes upon Jesus and watch without even noticing because it's not the point. But we, we notice, we watch, we see the world will grow strangely dim. And we will become obsessed with you, filled with you, in love with you. And things will start to fall off. Chains will begin to break. Addictions will have no hold. We will know you as good, follow you as good and say, I don't understand everything, but I know one thing. You are who you say you are and I love you, God. You are my father. You've got me. You've got me. I pray right now in the spirit of worship, the spirit of prayer, you would be possessing our hearts and our eyes with your love. May your spirit fill this room. May we begin to lean in. May hearts in this room begin to press in. May we make a decision right now to not let the journey so far define this moment, but let you define it. 
May we resist the urge of the flesh. May we resist the urge of comfort, of distraction, of pride. And may we press into a God who cares and loves and brings a life like no other. This is the moment. Maybe you're in this room and you don't even know who this Jesus is. Turn to him anyway. Ask of him in any way. Where are you? Who are you? My eyes will fix on you just as a light because I don't even know what else to think about. But draw me in. I'm open. If you're there, I'm here. If you're there, I'm here. Jesus, by the power of your blood and your mighty name, we praise you. We worship you and we love you.